Let's, uh, let's turn over to Luke 18. Uh, I'm going to share some of these scriptures fairly quickly, just simply because of our, our time here. But uh, I prayed about what to share this morning, and a number of things came through my mind. And I told Jody last night, I think I should start on that lesson this tonight or sometime soon. <laughs> and she looked at me in unbelief. And I said, no, I'm just kidding. I've already been working on it. We would like to thank everybody for the very nice shower gifts. There's tremendously thoughtful, generous, and we're, we're still in the note writing phase of that. But uh, it took a van and a car to get everything home. I, I told somebody, I said, That's, this is like uh, a good sermon illustration for pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Will men give unto your bosom? That's, that's what we felt like. Luke 18, we're talking t this morning about uh, the necessity of faith in receiving from God. Luke 18 and verse 6. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect to cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. And here's the key verse right here. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is a curious statement that Jesus is saying. We would say, well, of course, Jesus. You'll find, you'll find faith on the earth when you come back. I mean... Church is all about faith, isn't it? You know, keep the faith, brother. And um, we have faith in Zane Trace winning and, you know, faith, uh, faith of our fathers and all that. We've got lots of faith. Well, why would Jesus say this? Well, we're going to look into that. Let's look over here in Hebrews eleven six and get a, a Bible definition of faith. Hebrews 11 and verse 1. It says, now, faith is the substance. Some translations say title deed. Title deed or realization. Faith is the realization of things hoped for. It's not the same as hope. Faith is not the same as hope. You hope for something, and then you progress into faith. That is an absolute confidence that it's going to come to pass. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, with faith, you know it's done. It's like last night before I went to bed. I had absolute confidence that the sun would rise this morning. I mean, if I was a betting man, if Aaron and I were betting, I would bet Aaron a million dollars that the sun would arise this morning. That's the level of faith that we're talking about, an absolute confidence that something that you don't know about, that you don't have any, any circumstances or signs that it's going to happen, happens. You don't have any sense knowledge of it, but it happens, and you believe it's going to happen. So anyway, he says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. 
So we needed to have a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. These worlds didn't evolve. God spoke them into being so that the things which are seen were not made out of things which are visible. God took it out of the spirit realm and brought it into the physical realm. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, being he being dead yet still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away, prematurely raptured, so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if we really want to please God, we need to have faith. Without it, it's impossible to please him. Doesn't mean he doesn't love us, but to really make God happy, if we want to uh, bless him, we need to have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must, number one, believe that he is. You've got to believe that he really exists. And believe it or not, there are people going to church that have their doubts about his existence. But one of the requirements of faith is to believe that he is. And number two, that he's a rewarder. And reward is not a four-letter word in heaven. Reward is a heaven word. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, those who take the time and seek God. He rewards those efforts. And then going to Romans 14, 23. Fourteen twenty Romans 14, 23. It says, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, talking about dietary things and whether to eat meat or not eat meat. And Paul is saying you need to be convinced in your own mind which way to go. He says, though, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. And he says, for whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not faith-oriented, whatever is not motivated by faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith. In other words, if you're doing things that are not motivated by your faith in God, those things are considered sin. That kind of puts a new spin on that, the whole thing of sin. But let's go back in our little time machine to the Garden of Eden. And uh, we know that in the garden, God made a beautiful place. He had uh, fruit trees all over the place, oranges, tangelos, and apples, and probably fruits that we don't even know about today, and uh, uh, nuts, uh, cashews, uh, pistachio nuts, and, and all sorts of vegetables and everything. Everything was at its prime and never spoiled, and it was a pleasant climate-controlled situation, so pleasant was the climate that they didn't have to wear clothes. They didn't have to worry about clothes. They didn't get cold. They didn't get a chill. They didn't have to worry about setting the thermostat right because it was continually pleasant in an environment. It was a wonderful place, 
And there was only one rule in the whole place. And that was, God said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Whatever you do, don't do that, but do whatever else you want to do. Live it up. Have, have a great time in this garden. This garden is here for you. Made it for you. Till it, you know. Uh, prune the trees if you want to. But this garden is for you. This is God's perfect will for Adam and Eve. And he says, you know, I'm going to give you a choice, though, here. There is a, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you to eat from it. But it's going to be there just the same. It's going to be there. But I don't want you to eat from it. It's not my will that you eat from it. Well, we know that Adam and Eve, you know, they wandered around in the garden. We don't know how long they enjoyed the goodness of the garden or anything like that. But we do know that one day, as Eve was coming along, she passed by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there was a snake, or what looked like a snake. Maybe what used to be known as a, a dragon, maybe some snake with legs or something you can imagine that but anyway it spoke to her well evidently that wasn't unusual because she didn't get scared or anything and they had a little conversation and the devil was actually possessing that animal and the devil said to Eve you know Eve this fruit here is pretty good stuff you know she says, well, God, God said we, we shouldn't be eating that stuff. Shouldn't be eating this fruit. This is the only tree we can't eat, he said. And he says, uh, God told us, she says that uh, if we eat from this tree, we'll die. And uh, the devil says, well, no, you won't really die. He, and made it to be like God was wanting to keep him from something, wanting to keep him down, you know, from being up there with him, you know when they were already, you know, fellowshipping in the garden, perfect harmony. But the devil made it seem like God was keeping something from them. And uh, so Eve, after a while, we don't know how long it took. This could have been a day-to-day -day thing, you know. But eventually she, she took some of it, ate it, gave it to Adam, and he ate it. And we know the fall of man occurred. You say, why did God allow that tree to be there in the first place if it was going to be a stumbling block? Well, because God wants us to follow him of, his own free, of our own free will. He doesn't want us to be robots. He doesn't want to force us to love him. He had decided long ago in eternity past to make us, to create the human race. He was totally self-sufficient in himself. He didn't need anything from the outside. He, as a being, was totally self-sufficient. But he decided he was going to make a human race and put them on the earth and have animals and everything like that. And he, he wanted the human race to choose him of their own volition, their own wishes. He wanted to make his case and allow people to choose him as their God. So naturally, he had to provide another choice or allow another choice. And this other choice came in the form of a renegade angel called Lucifer, a fallen angel that had led a revolution in heaven and took a third of the angels with him. So God allowed this creature to come to earth and uh, get into a, the body of a poor little snake and tempt her. 
and uh, she gave in to him. Well, what happened? Well, Adam had been set as governor over the planet. God said, you know, I want you to have dominion over this planet, over all the animals. As a matter of fact, I'm going to have you name them all. So that was one of the activities in the garden, naming all the animals. And whatever name, Scripture says, whatever name Adam gave, that was the name of the animal. And uh, he named all the animals, and God just said, subdue this place, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And so they started to do that. But when Adam and Eve submitted to Satan's ideas, we'll call them option B. I have a little transparency here for you. This is one of my famous drawings, so bear with me. This is not professionally produced, therefore it doesn't have to be copyrighted. You can, you can use this material on your own if you ever have one of these things. But anyway, we have here these trees, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we have the, the demon-possessed snake, and then we have the tree of life. People normally when they're reading through scripture they totally pass over the tree of life but there was a tree of life there and the thing was that if Adam had passed his tests and had gone through the temptations and everything that Satan threw his way he could have eaten from the tree of life and lived forever that's why when he fell God said uh, we're gonna have to keep him away from the tree of life because if he eats the tree of life as a fallen creature, he'll be alive forever as a fallen creature. So block him from the garden, run him out, and uh, don't let him get near that tree. So uh, that's what they did. They sent some, uh, he sent some angels, and they ran him out and guarded the tree. This process, which occurred as a result of this, shows that first of all, we have uh, God appointing Adam as the governor, the under ruler of the planet. And uh, he has that rulership. And then when Adam and Eve obey Satan as opposed to obeying God, they're actually bowing down and worshiping him because they're believing that Satan has more authority than God does that Satan has more credence than God does. So in effect, the, he gives up his governorship to Satan. And Jesus called Satan the God of this world. And uh, Paul likewise called him the God of this world. He dwells in atmospheric part of the earth. Well, Satan lorded it over the human race as the governor. That didn't mean he was over God or anything, but God had set up this choice thing and given man a free will. So, you know, he had to let Adam do his thing. And then with Satan in this place of governorship, he ran, ran rugged throughout the whole earth. And we have the earth that we have today as a result of him being in a governorship and human beings submitting to him. Believe it or not, this earth is not the way it was originally intended to be. You know, the rapes, the murders, the, the grotesque things that are happening, this is not God's idea of a, 
uh, planet, a good planet. It's us as a human race submitting to Satan rather than God and doing whatever he wanted. And as a result, destruction and curse was all over the earth. And at one point, God said, I, you know, why did I do this? I'm going to destroy the whole planet. But fortunately, he saw Noah, and uh, he destroyed the whole planet, but he kept Noah alive to start the race again. And then later on, he ran into a man named Abraham who was in Ur of the Chaldees, in which uh, they just now opened up uh, tourism over in uh, Iraq to a place called Ur, which is believed to be the birthplace of Abraham. And... Uh, God comes along to Abraham, makes him an offer he doesn't want to refuse. It's a free will offer. Abraham could have said, no way, find yourself another man. And we don't know where Abraham was. And we know he was a worshiper of Herky the moon god, which is modern day Allah. But uh, Abraham fortunately said yes to God. He may have been in some, some bar in Ur or something like that. God comes to him and says, hey, what I do, Abraham? If you'll follow me, if you'll trust me, believe me, and go out into the wilderness with me, then I will prosper you, and I'll give you a lot of descendants and all sorts of blessing. Abraham says, yes, sounds good to me. And so he went. So as opposed to Adam, Abraham made a series of decisions in which he believed God. He said yes to God. Yes, 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 yes. And then along comes Isaac. And God comes to Isaac and says, now, Isaac, I tell you what, I got an offer for you. I am the God of Abraham, in case you don't know. And uh, if you'll do and obey me, if you'll go with my plan, I'll bless you like I did your papa. And he says, yes. So then he comes to Jacob and he says to Jacob, Jacob, I'll tell you what, I'll bless you like I did Abraham and Isaac. I am, as a matter of fact, the God of Abraham and Isaac. And if you'll say yes, and if you'll go with my plan, I will bless you. So we know Jacob later became named Israel, and the tribe of Israel sprung out of uh, that. And um, then uh, one of the tribes, Judah, yielded up Jesus. Jesus chose that particular tribe to, to manifest himself through in the virgin birth. And he comes, and he triumphs over Satan definitively, once and for all. At this point, when Jesus does his thing at the cross, Satan's future is sealed and cannot be changed. These people that teach that universal reconciliation, everybody will be saved in the end, are absolutely wrong. Satan is sentenced, and anybody connected with him is sentenced to hell already. And that's what we call somebody getting saved. They come out from under that sentence and come into the kingdom of God. Well, then the church was born, and the church was deputized by Jesus to, to go into all the earth and undo everything that Satan had caused. Gave us a mission. He said, the way you'll tap into this power is you'll simply believe me and believe what I say in my word. Just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just believe this. Believe it, and I'll know you're believing it because you'll act on it. That obedience is a diagnostic tool. It shows that you really believe what somebody says. Uh, 
there was a guy named Blondin, Monsieur Blondin, and he was from France, and he was a very daring man. And uh, he had this deal where he was a tightrope walker, and uh, he strung a tightrope over Niagara Falls. This is true. And uh, people would come, and they'd watch him on that tightrope, you know, walking over the falls. One, one slip, and he would end up in the rocks below and over the falls, and he'd be dead. So it was a very dangerous thing, and yet he could do it. He walked back and forth across the... Uh, falls <laughs> and uh, people said man Blondin you're fantastic you are amazing Blondin the way you do this this is just this is just great you are the greatest Blondin and uh, he got a wheelbarrow out and he rolled that across on the tightrope and uh, he said wow man even with a wheelbarrow and he said do you think I'm good and he said oh man you'll, you're so good you'd never fall and he said, uh, well, hop in the wheelbarrow and let me take you across. And they said, oh, well. <laughs> See, that's where the rubber meets the road. Faith, if, you truly, if they truly had faith in Blondin being able to do anything with this uh, tightrope, they would hop in the wheelbarrow and have no fear. Faith is shown by obedience to what God says. And what God says is in this. Uh, Abraham chose to believe God over Herky the moon God. God used Abraham as a springboard to Isaac, to Jacob, and to their descendants. And then we come over into the New Testament. If you will, turn over to Mark 35. Mark chapter 35. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And we have an instant in the life of Jesus. It says in verse 35, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, that is the disciples, let us cross over to the other side. Now, in my Bible, it's a red letter edition, so that's in red. So that means Jesus said it. Those are the words of Jesus. So what is God's will here? If you were asking a theology class and the professor said, now your homework for tonight is to tell me what God's will is in this verse. What would you say? What would you put on your paper? Get to the other side. Cross over. Absolutely right. The will of God, the perfect will of God, is to cross over to the other side. Now, when it says in verse 36, Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose. And this windstorm, uh, the word used for windstorm in the Greek is genomeni, which means a sudden, unexpected storm. So they didn't see this thing coming. And they're out in the middle, and suddenly the storm comes along, and waves are beating in the boat so that it's already filling. And Jesus is back in the back of the boat, asleep on a pillow. Why is he asleep on a pillow? Well, he's resting in God, his Father, because he's already, he knows what the will of God is, and he's just expecting it to, to, to go and to be performed. 
So he's asleep, and they awake him, the disciples do, and they say to him, Teacher, hey, don't you care that we are perishing? Two things there. They said, you don't care, and we're dying. Don't you care? And they should have known good and well he cared. He told them he loved them. And they weren't dying. There was some water getting, and the circumstances were bad. There was water getting in the boat. It was windy. It was bad. It looked like a, a scene from the perfect storm. Jesus arose, and he rebuked the wind. He talked to an inanimate object, wind. He said to the wind. He said something to the wind. And then he said something to the sea as well, water. He spoke to water. And he said to the water, and he said to wind, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, notice what he says to them. Very telling. He doesn't say, I understand how you guys got upset. I can really empathize with you. You know, you saw the water. You knew the structural integrity of this boat. And it was a sudden storm. It was sudden. You weren't expecting it, and it caught you by surprise. So I can understand that. Chill out here, and I'll take care of things from here. Kind of relax and, and uh, do breathing exercises. <laughs> he says, why are you so fearful? This is Jesus, the Son of God. He doesn't say anything that's, uh, he doesn't waste words. He doesn't say anything unnecessary. He, he's saying this for a reason. He says, why are you so fearful? I want to know. Why? Then he says, how is it that you have no faith? Or another variation on that translation, how have you still no faith? Well, my goodness, Jesus, why are you being so hard on these guys? Well, because they had seen him day in and day out, handle things, do things. They knew that he had deputized them to do things. He expected them to get up. While the storm was going on, and not wake him up, simply say to the wind and to the sea, Jesus said, we're going across and we're going across, so you'll have to quit. Quit. And, and it didn't have to be eloquent or anything. All they had to do is just say, he said, this guy back in the back that's asleep, he's the son of God, and he said, we're going across, so get out of the way, we're going across. Let's look over here in uh, Mark 16. Mark chapter 16. This is after the resurrection. It says, Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, that is the disciples, as they mourned and wept. So there they are crying like he really, really did die and wouldn't be coming back. They're mourning and weeping. And when they heard that he was alive, they said, Hallelujah, we knew he would arrive. We knew he would come back from the dead. No. They said, it says they did not believe. Mary Magdalene rushes in, you know, with a joy on her face, and she's, he's alive. And Nah, we don't believe you. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked 
and went into the country, and they went and told it to the rest. This is probably road of Emmaus. So they come rushing in. He's resurrected. We saw him. Well, they didn't believe them either. Notice what happens in verse 14. It says, later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at table. He just beamed into there. And notice what he did when he appeared. He didn't say, hi, how you guys doing? What's up? What are you having for dinner? He said he rebuked their unbelief. I rebuke your unbelief, he said. I rebuke that hardness of heart. Why? Well, because they did not believe. See, he had spoken the word about what was going to happen. He had said, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the bowels of the earth for three days and three nights and then rise again. And he said it in other places, in their hearing. One place they even commented on it. And yet they did not believe it, even though it came from the mouth of Jesus. So we see the disciples had problems with faith too. These guys that had seen Jesus day in and day out, they still had a problem with faith. And Jesus was rough on them because it was, it was an important thing. So he rebuked them. You know, normally, you know, he's, he's, he's pretty gentle with them and everything. Other than, other than when Peter said, you can't, you can't go to the cross, and he rebuked him. But other than that, he's pretty mellow with them. But on these cases where there's unbelief, he comes down on them. Let's look in uh, Mark 9. Mark chapter 9 and verse 14. It says, And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, What are you discussing with them? Jesus is kind of protective of them. What are, you, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought... You, my son, who has a mute spirit, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out. Thought it would be good to cast it out, but they couldn't. They drew a blank. Notice what Jesus says, his reaction to that. He didn't say, well, you know, I understand that when that green stuff comes out of a person's mouth and their eyes roll around, that it does scare people, and it's probably scared my disciples. So I, it's perfectly understandable. Let me add him. No, he says, he answers, he answers this father, and he says, Oh, faithless generation. Another translation is unbelieving generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? How long am I going to have to put up with this faithlessness, this unbelieving? Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him immediately, the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So here's this, this poor child just in the ground, rolling around, writhing, 
and it doesn't bother Jesus is not moved by the circumstances. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't bother him at all. As a, fact, as a matter of fact, he just keeps on the conversation. So he asked the father, oh, how long has this been happening to him? And he says, oh, from childhood. And often, you know, Jesus, he's, it has thrown him in both into the fire, into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, you're saying if you can, it's one translation. If you can, another translation is if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. All things are possible to him that believes. I said all, and Jesus, I didn't say it, Jesus said it, I'm just saying it because he said it. All things are possible. All, all, all means how much, uh, Aaron? It doesn't mean 50%, 70%, 90%. 99 and 99 100s. All. And you're saying 100%. So he's saying all things, 100% things are possible to the person who believes, that has faith in what God has said. Hmm, that's quite a promise. Well, it says, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw the people come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead. So that the many said, he's dead. Everybody's thinking, oh, no, Jesus, what are you done now? Killed the kid. Jesus totally unmoved by this. Jesus reaches down, takes him by the hand, lifts him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, uh, why couldn't we cast him out? And he said, this kind comes out by nothing but prayer and fasting. In other words, they had to get rid of the flesh, and they had to get into the spirit to be able to deal with his demon, to have the faith to deal with the demon. Because when you think of it, I, in our culture, we have so many things coming in from outside, from the media and everything, unbelief. What are you going to do when the H1N1 hits you? You know, how about your kids? Have you got the vaccination? Are you going to have it up the nose? You know, if you have it up the nose, you can't be too young and you can't be too old, but you can have the regular one once it arrives. And, you know, what are we going to do about the economic situation? It's getting worse and worse and worse, and the money will be worth nothing, and we'll have a cashless society and crisis on the way and everything else. Well, God says to believe, to have faith, to trust, to trust, to have trust. But, see, we, we have that bombardment, and then we give a little bit of time to Bible reading. So we have a little bit of input every day from God and a whole bunch from the world. You see why there's a difference between third world countries and their strong, powerful churches in the United States. So guys came over from one of those third world countries to the United States, and these guys were into missions, and they came over here, and they said, wow, what a country. You have all these conveniences. You have the water brought into your house. You don't have to go outside for the bathroom. You have clothes washers and dryers. You don't have to wash your clothes in the river. 
all these things. They must save you a tremendous amount of time, which you in turn use for Bible reading and prayer. I said, they save a lot of time so you can devote it to your priority in life, Bible and prayer. Talking to myself as well, you guys. The very minuscule amount of time we give to God and comparison to all that we get from everybody else. You know, they talk about the man upstairs, you know, on the baseball game. Well, it looks like the man upstairs is smiling on us today. You know, that cut away at your ability to believe God, your reverence for God, just chips away, little chips here and there, and then you get your little bit from God. So it's no wonder that the faith level in our country is where it is today because of that. And people have got to the place nowadays, I'm concerned about the church. The church has kind of started this, this direction where, you know, well, you know, supernatural, just lay that aside and move into relationship issues. And just do relationship. Relationship's great. But we need the power of God. The power of God is what solves problems. The power of God is what gets people's attention. The power of God is what brings people into the kingdom of God. There's people that say they're Christians and they don't believe Jesus rose again from the dead. I mean, they, the nation needs to be brought into reality and miracles and signs and wonders and answers to prayer bring people into a reality. They give them a reality check. They say, oh, there is a God. What about him? Well, look in his word and you can find out all sorts of things about him. Let's look at Mark 15, 21. I'm sorry, Matthew 15. Matthew 15, 21. Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Here's a woman. She doesn't have a covenant with God. She's a pagan. She's an outsider. And Jesus has been sent to the Jews first. He was sent to the Jews. And this pagan has the gall. She's not even a Samaritan, half Jew and half pagan. She's all the way pagan, trailer trash. Comes to him and says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Well, she's got it right in, in terms of him being the Messiah. And she knows that God has mercy. So she makes the appeal based on mercy. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. Jesus ignored her. Jesus ignored this poor woman. His disciples came, urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent, lady. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm just ministering to Jews now. Gentiles aren't eligible. They're not a part of this thing. But they didn't give her up. A lot of people say, well, that must be God's will. My daughter's got to be demon-possessed. Jesus said he's not ministering to us Gentiles now. But she, she stayed after it. 
She came and she worshipped him. She must have heard about his ability because her faith is driving her. She came and she worshipped him saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, Lady, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the little dogs. He called her a dog. Now, most of the time you call a lady a dog. She smack you. He said, it's not right. He said, it's not right. This is for the children of Israel. I'm ministering to them. They get first dibs on this stuff. We're not going to be wasting it on or giving it to the pagans. It's for the children of Israel. But she said, true. Yes, Lord. Even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. I'm just asking for leftovers, Jesus. And in that single sentence, she captured what was prophetically going to happen when the children of Israel rejected for, a small, for some part Jesus and it was taken to the Gentiles. She captured that. She captured that and gave that to Jesus. And Jesus, whoa. Jesus answered and said to her, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Great. It's in the greatness scale. He's used faithless before. You know, where is your faith and everything? Here he's saying, great. It's on its way over on the, on the red zone in the meter. Great is your faith. Let it be as you desire. Whatever you desire. You want her free? She's free. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. And then uh, Luke 7. Luke 7. verse 1 and I am going to be wrapping it up shortly verse 1 it says now when he had concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people he entered Capernaum and a certain centurion servant now a centurion was a, a Roman commander of a hundred he had a hundred men under him the centurions were like green berets, every single one of them. They were proficient in all the weapons that Romans used, spears, swords, daggers, clubs, whatever. So here's this tough guy, this John Wayne type guy. He's got 100 men under him, macho guy. And he's, he's part of the occupying army. It'd be like if the Chinese took over or the Russians took over, and he was one of them, you know. He's, he was an occupying person. He was, he was worse than that Syrophoenician woman, that pagan woman, because he was actually an enemy of Israel, and in addition to being a pagan, 100% pagan guy, lost. But it says this was a different kind of guy. A certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent the elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. So he had a relationship with these Jews of all things. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. Believe it or not, Jesus, this centurion, loves our nation. He's built us a synagogue. He's showed us love in action. And Jesus, notice what Jesus did. Here's the pagan guy, unsaved, no covenant. It says in verse 6, Jesus went with him. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord don't trouble yourself. I'm not even worthy that you should enter under my roof. 
He says, I know about you Jews, and, you know, you can't come into a Gentile's house. I just thought of it, son of a gun. Therefore, I've got a solution. Therefore, I did not even think of myself worthy to come to you, but here's what we do. Say the word, Jesus. Speak your word, and my servant will be healed. I just, I don't need any sense knowledge, Jesus. All I need is for you to say the word. I will believe it. I will receive it, and my servant will be healed. Because I know about this, Jesus. In verse 8, he says, I'm also a man placed under authority, and I have soldiers under me, lieutenants and sergeants and all them. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my servants, do this, and they do it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Oh, wow. He marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. So Jesus says great faith is simply taking God's word at face value and acting on it. That's great faith, not looking at circumstances or any kind of sensory input from your five senses out in the, the, the non-feeling arena, disbelieving, strictly believing God's word and acting on it. He said that's great, great faith. So in closing, I just want to give you some, some ideas from this. You know, a lot of times we pray for things, and we're actually praying in hope. And hope is good. We should all have hope. We should all believe for the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, and, and believe that there is a solution. But that's different from faith. Faith is the confidence that you have what you've prayed for based on God's word. You've taken God at his word and you just believe it. And you say, how do you get that way, Bill? I have trouble. I, I, I start thinking I'm believing, but then I find it's a mental thing and it starts sliding away. How do you get it? Well, whatever you need, you need to meditate on it from the Word of God. Find out what the Word of God says about it and meditate it on. How long should we meditate? Well, meditate until you got it in your mind, in your spirit, until you see it just as clear as day. That's faith. And when you pray, then you get the answer to your prayer. If it's not faith, you know, you don't say, you don't pray for somebody or pray with somebody for something and go away and say, I hope it worked. Now, you've got to have that knowing. You, the, you know that you know that you know that you know that it's going to happen. Just like I know that tonight the sun's going to go down and it's going to get dark. I know that. We'd be willing to bet anybody that's going to, in Ohio, not, don't get me up in Antarctica or anything like that. In, in Ohio, it's going to get dark tonight. Guarantee you. If I was a betting man, I'd bet on it. That kind of certainty is what we need to develop, and it only comes from meditation on the Word of God, memorizing it, meditating on it, speaking it out, and speaking it out until it becomes one with us, until it slides from up here in our mind down here into our spirit. Don't give up on God and His miracle-working ability until you really have your faith developed because faith is the only thing that brings it to pass. Now, God, from time to time, sovereignly does things outside of that, but... I mean, as far as seeing uh, things happen in your life supernaturally, don't give up on God because you prayed for something and it didn't happen the way you wanted it to happen. Maybe you prayed in hope. 
You know, I wouldn't want to ever, ever say somebody didn't get something because they didn't have enough faith. That's for them and God to decide. But it's possible, isn't it? From what we read, it's possible for that to happen. We should entertain at least that possibility and think, well, you know, maybe I just need to get back into the Word and meditate more. It was like when I was teaching the class on finances. I'll tell you, every, every week, every time I gave that out, it just built me up, 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 up. And I began to see the possibilities that God could do things in the world with, with money. He could change things. He could, he, could, he could finance the welfare system. There's all sorts of things that God could do in this world which would change people's lives forever. But I only got that by meditating on it week after week after week after week after week. And then I noticed as I got away from it and didn't meditate on it, it started going back down again. So faith is not static or just one place all the time. It's dynamic. It goes up and down. You know, if you just watched uh, an unbelief show on TV where the preacher said it's all passed away and doesn't happen again, your faith is going down. If you watch something which built you up, you heard one of Aaron's dynamic sermons on something that pertained to you, then your faith is built up. And you need to just keep shoring it up until you actually receive the thing that you're seeking. All righty. Well, that's... I'm. I'm going to quit right there. I appreciate being able to speak to you today, and I'd like to pray for you before I step down. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true, God. It's forever settled in heaven. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, God, separating between soul and spirit. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. And I pray, God, for everybody that's heard this word, God, on faith, that it'll go deep in their hearts, O oh God, and it'll bring forth the fruit that you desire, God, that people won't be able to forget about it, but they'll be pricked in their conscience if they have been in any, any kind of faithlessness, God, if they've let their faith slip, O oh God, and thought, well, no, maybe God can't do that, or, you know, he maybe doesn't want to do it. If they've done that, God, I pray that you'd convict us and help us to confess it as sin. Father, unbelief is sin, God, and we need to confess it when we have it in our lives. And build our faith. Help us to build our faith, God. Help us to meditate on your word like the Jews did day and night and so that it's so real to us. It's more real than what's coming over the news. It's more real than what anybody around us can say. It's more real than anything else in our life. And I ask this, God... In the name of Jesus, amen.